Hello and welcome to Tell Me Where I'm Going. I'm your host, Chris DeLuca, and this is the only podcast in the world that improvises a novel every week. At least I'm pretty sure that's true. You know, different tweet at me. But I'm sticking with it. This is the only improvised novel. There's only one person nuts enough to do this thing, and that's me. Chris. So what does that mean? What is an improvised novel? If you don't know, it's... Well, I wouldn't be surprised because this is the only one that exists. But I write a chapter of my ongoing serialized fiction about the Traveling Wilburys. That super group from the late 80s. And, uh... Instead of just doing music in my story, they also solve crime. So it's really fun. It's really wild. And part of the reason why it's so wild is because inevitably I run out of ideas. You know, I don't like to admit it, but I do. I write myself into a corner. I don't know what happens next. And that's where you all, the listening audience, come into this experiment. You tell me where I'm going. You you give me suggestions about what happens next and then we put them all in a poll you all vote on it the winning suggestion the one that gets the most votes I write that into the next chapter and it's not cosmetic stuff it's not like what colors his hair it's it's big stuff story stuff it's stuff that I can't I have to write it after I hear it you know it's 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 big fundamental stuff. And uh wow, has has this experiment been going well, I think. You know, there's been it's been getting me out of my ruts and it's been sending the story on a totally uh, uh topsy-turvy ride. And that's what you're going to be hearing today. The latest chapter of this ongoing story. Um but before we get to that, let's just take a moment to recap What's been happening so far? Now, the whole premise here is that, uh, you know, just to remind everyone, and you should go back and listen to the previous episodes if you really want to know what's happening, but just a a brief recap. The last time where we left our heroes, the Traveling Wilburys, um, they were deep underground, and uh, they had been looking for their, their missing groupie Dixie, and they had finally found her, quite by accident, but still they found her, and uh, she was um, being put in part of some like weird ritual by some weird cult deep underground. And, uh, and they found her there. And the band was trying to get her out of there. Uh, they were also kind of being a little selfish, um, you know, back and forth. Finally, the cult was, uh, they, they kind of struck a deal. Uh, instead of killing them, uh, they would let uh, the Wilburys um, go through ironic trials kind of based on who they were as people. So they're going through all those, and they finally get through them, and looks like they had what they, they wanted, but then Dixie was gone. Dixie had ran away. She had escaped. She she wasn't bothering with uh, with anyone. She took matters into her own hands. So, you know, now, now nobody knows where she is again. Um, and then right after that, uh, the other groupies, Connie, Belinda, and Yuna, uh, who were friends with Dixie and who kind of tasked the Wilburys with this whole quest to begin with, they come rushing in. 
you know, they they didn't they didn't know the Wilburys were there necessarily, but they knew that kind of where where Dixie was because they had a a vision. You know, they were they were hanging out with uh, Martin Scorsese in another part of the subterranean uh, world. Um, where there was like this kind of uh, piece together Studio 54 and this ancient prophecies kind of going on. And, you know, uh, Martin had given them a bunch of crazy Studio 54 drug leftovers and they were tripping and flying through, finding, and they kind of had a premonition. They knew where Dixie was and they were running towards it and then that's where they came in. But they're all high as a kite and... Um, yeah, it's uh it's all it's all there. Um and then Bob Dylan and Jeff Lynn run into two cultists who had been dressed as Bob Dylan and Jeff Lynn and passing themselves off as those two musicians to the groupies. Now, if all that sounds insane and over the top, you're right. I I'm not apologizing for that. And that part of that is because well, you, the audience, helps me out with where to go next. All those, a lot of those details come came from you, and and that's fueling this very specific narrative. Dare I say, very important narrative. So, that's the setup. What happens right right before we we left our heroes, Bob and Jeff and the two doppelgangers for Bob and Jeff all ran into each other and they kind of strangely gripped each other's heads. Like, what's that about? And that's what I wanted to know about. And uh, that's what I, you know, threw to you, the audience, about well, what happens? And and you told me. And and in fact, it was, it was interesting. Two people's suggestions got an equal amount of votes. So the way we do it here is that if there's a tie, there's a tie. There's no tiebreaker. We use both which means I had to write both and try to figure out how these two ideas will mesh together. And you're gonna... and boy, was that a challenge. But just to remind you of what those two, those two suggestions were. First, when, when Bob and Jeff grab each other's heads and they kiss passionately, all right? That's, that's a big one, right? That's okay. And then the second one, is that Bob gets mad because his wig was taken off. And he, st- and he starts yelling, clearly. Two very different, almost opposite things. And, and because they both got the same amount of votes, now I have to make that work. I have to write both of those and make them both true and honor both of those suggestions and write them into the fabric of this chapter. And the ongoing narrative, really. This is all true. Anything that becomes uh, a suggestion is true for the rest of the story. You're right in truth here. So, this was a tough one. I think I did it. I think I pulled it off. I think you're going to be happy with how I treated your precious ideas. And if you're not, don't tell me. You can tell me. So, without further ado... Let's jump into Chapter 7. Enjoy. The fake Bob and Jeff sprinted into the chamber, 
running straight into their real counterparts. Too startled to scream, the pair stared at each other for a moment. Then, in strange unison, they grabbed each other by the temples. Then they all kissed passionately. The cultists, the groupies, the rest of the band, and Eddie Money all stared at Bob Dylan and Jeff Lynne making out with their doppelgangers in shock. So much wild stuff had happened so fast, it was hard to keep track. First, Dixie had escaped while everyone was distracted with occult-devised ironic tests. Second, they were suddenly reunited with the groupies, and the ladies didn't seem to know there was anyone in the room. Third, they discovered that there was two Bob Dylans and two Jeff Lynns. And last, Bob and Jeff were now macking on themselves. All this in the span of 30 seconds. It was enough to make your head spin. The kissing lasted. And lasted. And lasted. No simple peck on the lips. The Bobs were caressing each other's backs, while the Jeffs had clearly graduated to tongue. Wet smacks echoed in the otherwise silent cavern. Jeff had just lifted Jeff's leg and was ducking him into a swoon position before Tom interjected. If this is research for a concept album, it sucks! There was a thick popping sound as the Jeffs pulled their lips apart. You're just jealous that you haven't found true love with yourself, like me and Jeff Lynn, cried Jeff Lynn. How is that possible? You just met... I'll have you know that I've known myself my entire life. In England, we call that a wanker. Shut up. You're jealous too, George. You're all jealous. You won't recognize the love between a man and that same man because you can't stand it that for once old Jeff Lynn got something that you all didn't. Bob got the same thing. Well, actually, it looks like he's getting a little more, if you know what I mean. Shut your face, Harrison! We've chased that clown. We've searched for Dixie. We got scared by stuffed animals. We got taken in by Eddie Money. We ran through that horrible sunken fairground. We got scared by our own mismatched reflections in the mirror maze, which, upon reflection, must have just been my love, Jeff Lynn, staring back at Bob, and vice versa. For once... Something incredible has happened in this hellish underground world. We've been attacked and accosted and humiliated this whole time. And now, i found love. Not the complicated love between two people, but the simple love between one person, but made flesh. And damn it, Jeff and I, we're getting married. Isn't that right, Jeff? No, no, don't speak. I already know my answer. I'm burying myself. Just then, Bob Dylan let out a cry of dismay from the cavern floor, jumping to his feet and clutching a curly hair wig. Bald, the other quote-unquote Bob Dylan, slowly got to his feet, hanging his head and tearing off his fake beard. Tom slapped his forehead. Red, red, they're not the same person. That makes more sense. Jeff Lynn looked wide-eyed at his counterpart. No! Wait! Desperate, Jeff pulled at Jeff's hair and beard, both coming off easily, revealing a man who didn't even look a bit like Jeff Lynn. No! You lied to me! I thought you were me! 
Now you're just another you. No. Bob screamed at Bob, hurtfully. Bob's one-time double curled his lip in anger, and in a petty attempt at revenge, snatched at Bob Dylan's fro. To his surprise, it came away in his hands. He stared in disbelief at the one and only Bob Dylan's hair, the iconic curls tangling his fingers. For the first time in his life, Bob Dylan spoke clearly. That's my wig! Everyone in the cavern looked in amazement at Bob Dylan. All this time, what he had been hiding under his afro wig was a larger afro. George shrugged. Well, that's Dylan for you. Before Bob and Jeff could descend deeper into heartbreak, a shadow descended over the cavern. In fact, it was multiple shadows. Across the altar, twisted strands of tentacled darkness wormed outwards. Some cultists gasped in recognition. Other voices caught in their throats. But everyone in the cavern was riveted in place, staring transfixed at the otherworldly phenomena. For a moment, the world felt suspended in motion. The inhale of breath held, keeping whatever terror oozed from the slithering shadows at bay. Then, everything happened all at once. George Harrison dropped to his knees in prayer. Jeff Lynn crawled under a rock. Bob Dylan bit a passing cultist. Roy Orbison threw up. Tom Petty ripped off his clothes. Connie ran through the chaos as if nothing was happening. Una threw a plastic figurine at the altar. Belinda squawked like a chicken. Eddie Money blew violent snot rockets. And the fake Bob and Jeff started making out with each other. And then, things got really crazy. But before we get into that, let's dig into why all these people reacted the way they did. George Harrison had always been on a journey of the soul seeking an understanding of the chaos of the world through a connection with a higher power. While he explored many spiritual paths, his most notable was his association with the Hare Krishna specifically, and Eastern philosophy in general. This spiritual focus was evident in the later Beatles years, but really came into the fore when Harrison went solo, most famously with his 1970s number one single, My Sweet Lord. When George saw the black tentacles slithering from the altar, the song immediately came to mind. In it, Harrison pleads, My sweet Lord, I really want to see you. As true and personal a statement as any George ever made. Now, looking at the creeping darkness and realizing that anything of this otherworldly presence must be some form of the higher power he had been seeking all this time... George wasn't sure his lord was so sweet, or that he still wanted to meet. His collapse to his knees was to pray for a unilateral take-backsies on the whole meeting God trip, and to once again apologize for ripping off the chiffons on My Sweet Lord. Jeff Lynn was a coward. Always had been. Like any character flaw, there was a good reason for this traceable to a single anecdote from early childhood. It happened when a five-year-old Jeff was walking a filthy Birmingham back alley and a group of toughs jumped from behind a trash pile and said boo. He never recovered. Now, staring down the most horrifying thing he'd ever seen, Jeff remembered the old cliché insult for ignorance involving living under a rock and thought that sounded safe. 
we come to Bob Dylan, who, after seeing the spreading darkness, snarled and bit a passing cultist. This may seem animalistic and borderline insane, but again, there's a reasonable explanation considering the artist's textured history. And that is, Bob's a maverick. When Roy Orbison was a young man playing songs on his six-string to anybody who would listen, he used to swim in the Pease River during the sweltering Texas summers. One day, while thusly engaged, he noticed dark splotches wriggling towards him from upstream. He frowned, lowering his dark sunglasses to be sure. Yes, it was unmistakable. Jet-black tentacles blooming through the water, coming straight for him. He tried to swim back to shore, but the distance was too far. The inky substance caught him, wrapping him up. A strong swimmer, Orbison moved powerfully through the water, but the goop was heavy, weighing him down, his head ducking below the water once, twice, three times, covering his face in the slime. Panting and retching, Roy finally made it to the shore. He might have died from heat stroke had a neighbor not happened by and took him to a hospital. Even after he was cleaned up and hydrated, Roy caught a strange illness, becoming violently sick for nearly a week. Roy would eventually learn that an oil tank had cracked upriver, spilling its black guts into the peas, and he was lucky to be alive. The experience left an indelible impression on him. The similarity with what he was currently seeing and that experience in the river all those years ago would have gone a long way to explaining why Roy was barfing. However, Roy couldn't actually see the shadows through his dark sunglasses this far underground. Instead, the throw-up was caused by eating some expired cotton candy back in the sunken fairground, and it came up now purely by chance. The intensity of seeing this otherworldly phenomena sent Tom Petty into another acid flashback. Instead of sending him to Honduras selling tortas like normal, he was sent back to the time he told Eddie Money about his previous acid flashback, where he did sell tortas in Honduras. This then reminded Tom of Eddie Money peeing on his equipment, which he then remembered didn't happen. It was actually Linda Ronstadt. This memory correction sent him on a related acid fiction, where Linda was currently peeing all over him, which was one of the few fetishes he didn't have. Disgusted, Tom stripped off his pea-soaked clothes, spitting the singer-songwriter's urine out as he did so. Obviously, none of this was actually happening, so he just looked like he immediately decided to get naked, while in seeming disgust of his own choice, and inexplicably spitting. Connie was tripping. Tripping hard. The psychotropic cocktail Martin Scorsese had given her was so powerful the hallucination wrapped almost all the way back around to straight. Almost. Instead of seeing things that weren't there, she didn't see things that were there, namely any of the fifty-odd people in the cavern or the slithering shadow tentacles. Single-minded in her mission to find Dixie, she sprinted across the cavern towards one of the many exit passages. The cultists were running around in a mad scrum, a writhing crowd without direction, all screams and flailing limbs and the occasional cry of, Crokinow arrives! Amidst that chaos, it would be natural to assume that Connie would run into at least one, if not most of, the cultists on her way through the room. 
and yet Connie had been to so many shows and been in so many raucous crowds that even though her conscious mind didn't perceive them, some part of her was aware of her surroundings, and she deftly navigated the mass of people untouched. Equally astounding, she happened to run down the same passage Dixie had chosen minutes before. Una pulled out the plastic figure she had found hours before outside the Zamboni locker. She had felt a presence in the figure, and felt the need to have it now in light of all the darkness. Una had always felt connections to things, people, and events she couldn't explain. This was partly because she had a limited vocabulary, but mostly because the events were mysterious. Once, when she was in a hotel room with Phil Collins, she had a premonition that she was meant to be in the next room. Stopping everything, much to Phil's dismay, she followed her instinct, and lo and behold, there in the next room was Peter Gabriel. How did her intuition know? Genesis broke up shortly after. Another time, Eunuch got the distinct sense that one of Mott the Hoople's microphones would somehow cause a death. She threw it into a lake, and the very next day, no one died. Now, holding this figure that was mysteriously at the site where the Wilburys had originally disappeared, and looking at it more closely, kind of looked a lot like George Harrison, the mysterious connection was clear. This figure was mysterious, and this creeping, inky darkness was mysterious. Two plus two equals throw it. She chucked the figurine at the altar with a combination battle cry and terror yelp, the mystery perfectly explaining her actions. She also was on all the same drugs as Connie, so that could have something to do with it, too. Meanwhile, Belinda was clucking like a chicken and throwing dirt and gravel in the air. She had also taken all the same drugs as Connie and Yuna, but they hadn't kicked in yet. Throughout her life, Belinda had a history of being one step behind on social cues, like in fifth grade when she showed up to Becky Sanders' Halloween party without a costume, or when she arrived late to her cousin Trudy's wedding as the Wolfman. She wasn't going to be the weird one this time. Everyone else was doing a random, inexplicable thing, and so was she. Chicken. Eddie Money was convinced he had snorted contaminated cocaine again. In 1980, Eddie had overdosed on a barbiturate he mistook for cocaine, gifting him with a permanent limp. He vaguely remembered seeing some strange, shadowy visions while on that trip, so he was blowing his nose as hard as he could to try and get the bad snow out. Unfortunately for everyone near him, Eddie hadn't done coke in eight years, and there was nothing up his nose except snot. And a lot of it. So much. More than you'd think. Here's an exercise. Pause this podcast and write down a number. I'll wait. Okay, have you got your number? Whatever you wrote down, Eddie had more snot up his nose than that. Or less, depending on how high you went. The fake Bob Dylan and Jeff Lynn, real names unknown, had been in deep with the cult for years. Obsessed with the artists they would later assume the identities of, 
they discovered their shared interests after sitting next to each other during a workshop on inserting satanic messages into popular music. The pair started spending more time together, talking late into the night about their dreams. One such night they came up with the idea to impersonate Bob and Jeff to feel closer to their idols. They figured they could sell it to the cult brass as a way to infiltrate the traveling Wilburys. To their surprise, the supreme leader went for it and pushed it as a top priority. Training for months in deep character, the duo never could lose their prominent southern accents, so the cult leadership had them lean into it. Fortunately, both Bob and Jeff had country phases, so all hoped dressing the part would be enough to sell the effect. All was going well, and the two were giddy with excitement as the Wilburys' tour approached New Jersey. Much to everyone's surprise, the band literally fell into their turf, accelerating the plan. Things started going wrong when the two tried to get close to their idols in the mirror maze, pretending to be their reflections, and accidentally appeared across from the wrong Wilbury. The real Bob and Jeff ran away screaming, breaking the imposters' hearts. They almost abandoned the mission and the cult right then. But a cultist, unaware of the incident, had tipped them off about the groupie's location, rightly thinking that it would be a prime opportunity to pass themselves off as the musicians without fear of the real ones showing up. After the imposters moved into position, the real Wilburys caused the cave-in and the rest is history. Literally running into their idols again only moments ago, it could have easily been a repeat of the mirror maze. Yet this time, instead of running in fear, the fake Jeff and Bob were met with unbridled love. It was like a dream come true for both of them, an unspoken acknowledgement of feelings deeply held. As soon as it started, it came crashing down. The real Bob and Jeff weren't in love with the impersonators. They were in love with themselves, and the two were once again left heartbroken. Yet now, as those dark tentacles crept towards them, Shattering any norm that may have stood in their way, they wordlessly realized it wasn't their idols who they were in love with. It was each other. If they were going out, to hell with it. They might as well die happy. And that's why everyone reacted the way they did, right before things got really crazy. The crazy started with George Harrison holding up a Bob Dylan wig. Everyone stop! It's okay! There's no sweet lord in the form of black tentacles coming to get us. See? It's just a shadow cast by this curly wig, and the movement is from the flickering torchlight. Watch, I'll make it stop. George threw away the wig. The tentacles still writhed toward the crowd. Panic rumbled up. But wait, wait! There's still no reason to panic. There were two Bob Dylans, so there's another curly wig out there casting the shadows. From the looks of it, it must be coming from that outcropping back there. There was a murmur of relief, until Eddie Money groaned. No, I have the wig, and I'm not in that outcropping. He threw it away, and the tentacles still came forward. Either there's a third wig, or these tentacles are real. Oh, my sweet lord. Everyone was inhaling to fully panic again when the tentacles vanished. Before anyone could be relieved, the now one-armed and somehow still-alive killer clown jumped from behind the outcropping, his ratty, 
tentacle-like green curly wig swaying atop his head. A bloody grin was plastered across his face. Hi there! In the moment before everyone ran screaming in all directions, the clown ripped open his shirt, revealing... And that's where I lose the plot. I have no idea what happens next. I, again, I wrote myself into a corner. I know that the clown has to rip open his shirt. It feels so important. It feels vital. And he reveals something, but I have no idea what it is. You have to help me out. Suggest something. I, I need to know. Like, he, he rips open his shirt, and then what? This is important. This is going to be crucial. Crucial to the story moving forward. But, I mean, what is it? Is it his chest? Is it something else? I have no idea. What is under his shirt? What is revealed? This now suddenly appearing killer clown? What happens? Okay, if you have an idea, even if you don't, you can suggest your thoughts on Twitter at UTMWIG. That's Y-O-U-T-M-W-I-G. You can tweet those suggestions, and hey, why not use the hashtag Improvised Novel? Uh, if Twitter's not your thing, you could also use email to suggest them at me, and that's at suggestions at tellmewhereimgoing.com. Two great avenues, one me. I don't, what, what? Anyway, that's the challenge. That's that's what uh, that's what we're dealing with here. So. Give me your suggestions, and please tell a friend about this podcast if you like it. You know, rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. That, that, you know, really helps us out and lets more people know about us. And you know the podcast deal. You know the whole trip. All right. That's enough. Thanks so much for listening, and have a great evening. You've been listening to Tell Me Where I'm Going, part of the Let's Hear It Network. To find out more, visit letshearit.network.